0: Well, if you have your Bible, if you have your Bible, turn with me to uh, Mark chapter nine. And uh, just real quickly before we get there, you probably saw. Or let me say it this way: If you if you were in this in the auditorium when the uh, video announcements uh, play, what we call in the know, you saw a brief uh, plug for Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. And uh, Perspectives, if you haven't heard of this before, it's a fifteen week class that is designed to really reveal to showcase from the scriptures God's mission for the world God's plan for the world and and I know that many of you have already taken this class because I had lunch with a pastor this week who's, who is a pastor in the Huntsville area and he said that we hosted perspectives at capture I guess it was a couple of years ago and he said that was he said that was probably the best class that this region has ever seen in terms of participation involvement so I know many of you have already been part of perspectives but just wanted to mention it to you, if it's not just for those preparing for ministry or those preparing for vocational ministry, it's anybody who wants to know better uh, something of God's plan for the world. And so uh, that's going to be offered this fall in two locations. One will be Lindsey Lane Baptist Church, uh, which I understand is close to here, and then the other one is going to be in Decatur. So two Thursday and Friday nights beginning uh, early August and if you haven't taken, it is a big commitment. It's 15 weeks. The classes run some three hours long. Um, but if you haven't taken this, would really encourage you to at least pray about it and think about it. I'll be teaching uh, lesson four at both locations. And I've been a student. I took the class myself in, in uh, 2003 and have been an instructor for a number of years. Just a fantastic uh, offering uh, that I hope you'll at least consider taking advantage of. Um, there's an icebreaker that pops up in, in uh, youth groups all across the country, not so much in uh, perspectives, I don't think, um, but it involves uh, asking students a series, and I didn't check with Brandon to see, Pastor Brandon to see this is one that our youth group does, but the name of the game is called Would You Rather? Anybody heard this before? Maybe a student, maybe a couple of you, okay. So the, the premise is you're asked, to see, students are asked a series of questions, and they have to choose uh, between these, um, these crazy options crazy, I don't know, funny uh, scenarios. For example, one is, uh, would you rather have the head the size of a grapefruit or a watermelon? Now remember, these are this is for students, so um, would you, rather, you have to choose one of those, and of course it, it, it breaks the ice. A couple other ones uh, that I've heard, uh, would you rather always laugh at sad things, so you always laugh when something sad comes around, or you always cry at funny things? You see how this thing works, right? You have to choose between these uh, these somewhat uh, silly options. Well, in July of 2014, psychologists from University of Virginia teamed up with some psychologists from, from Harvard University, and they conducted what I would call a more scholarly version of Would You Rather. Now, the goal was not uh, to be done as an icebreaker. The goal in this study, this research study, was to determine how adults feel about being alone in solitude with no electronic devices, no external stimuli at all. So what they did is they asked a number of participants, you had to register for this study, and they asked these participants to spend 15 minutes alone. No phone, no Facebook, no Snapchat, not even any books or magazines. So you had these 15 minutes completely alone in complete silence. Again, nothing else uh, that served as, as stimuli. And then they reported back, they asked the participants, how did you feel about that? And how did that experience compare to some other experiences that you might enjoy? So again, they asked them to to rate their experiences against other experiences, some positive and some negative. For example, compare being alone. Compare being alone with, with no phone, no book, no magazine, no TV. Compare that to digging a ditch, for example, going to a funeral sitting in a dentist chair. Now, it was an interesting study, and what these psychologists found out was absolutely fascinating to me. They found that people would rather do just about anything, just about anything, over being alone and quiet for just 15 minutes. For for example, uh, this is what their study revealed, that there were some people who hate being quiet and alone so much they put that below any other number of negative experiences. Even this, get this, some chose that they would rather self-administer painful electric shocks than sit in quiet for 15 minutes. There were many who said they would rather go sit in a dentist chair and have work done on their teeth than sit for 15 minutes alone without any extra, external stimuli. Some said they would rather dig a ditch. The, the, the list goes on and on. Now, it's fascinating in that it explains, I think, why so many of us have such a difficult time getting alone with God in prayer. I mean, it's hard to find moments of silence without any sort of external noise. And after about five or six minutes, you know, it, it, it's hard to be alone in quiet. And yet, as we're going to see this morning, prayer, as we continue to work our way through this series, First Things, prayer is, is, is the lifeblood of the Christian and, and as it relates to overcoming the powers of darkness in this broken world, there is no substitute. There's no substitute for desperate prayer. So we're in the final week of a six-week series that I'm calling uh, First Things. And uh, we're looking at those pillars, those foundational commitments that, that a faithful church clings to. Uh, we looked at glory, first week, gospel, mission, worship, uh, community. And this morning, we're going to wrap up our series on this, this pillar of prayer. Next week, we're going to begin an expositional series through 1 Timothy, which I'm really excited about. But again, this morning, we're going to look at this absolutely pillar of the church, the pillar of the Christian faith, and that is prayer. So Mark uh, chapter 9, we're going to cover verses 14 through 29, but let me begin uh, by reading verses 14 through 19. The text reads like this, and when they came to the disciples, uh, they saw a great crowd around them. And scribes arguing with him. And immediately all the crowd when they saw him. This is Jesus. I'll explain in a minute. They were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and become rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So just to give you a little context, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's been uh, up on a mountain with uh, Peter, James, and John for what we know as the transfiguration, which is uh, one of the most incredible passages in the Bible where uh, Jesus is, uh, Moses appears and Elijah appears. Moses sort of fades, disappears. Elijah disappears. A way of us uh, being informed that, that Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. How Jesus, how Christ is to be exalted above the law and the prophets. And so Jesus has just been with this select group of disciples. And he's been away for a while. And so the crowd's gotten kind of restless, you know. They, they've spent a lot of time with Jesus. And, and when he's away, they want to know, where is this guy? Where is this miracle worker? Where is this great teacher? So he's been away, and, and when he comes down the mountain, it kind of fills the air with a bit of electricity, a bit of hope. Jesus is back with us, and yet hope is precisely what the other disciples have failed to generate. Uh, while Jesus was gone, the disciples had a perfect opportunity to showcase the, the, the power of this kingdom that had invaded the earth, this, this kingdom that Jesus had been preaching about and, uh, and yet, when a man came to Jesus with his son, who was possessed by an evil spirit, the text tells us they were not able to help. So Jesus is gone, and he's up on a mountain with a few of his select disciples, and, and this guy comes to Jesus with his son, who has been possessed by an evil spirit that's made him mute, unable to talk. And they, they bring this guy to the disciples, and the disciples, they can't do anything. They're unable to help in any way. Instead of creating confidence, they actually bring upon themselves the angst of the audience. The the audience believes that they can help, but they're unable to do anything. And so to the disciples and to the audience, Jesus says, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? And then he says at the end of verse 19, this critical phrase, Bring him to me. Bring him to me. This is not the first time we've heard Jesus say this. It happened only a few weeks prior to this. It was getting dark and there were a crowd of 15,000 people roughly following Jesus. We know it as the feeding of the 5,000. And they're hungry. They've been watching Jesus, following him, and they're getting hungry. And Jesus tells his disciples, you feed them. Well, there's no way they had any way to feed them. 15,000 people, maybe more, and they only had a few pieces of bread and a few fish. Jesus does that to expose to the disciples their inability, their, their dependence upon him, And they say to him, all we have are a few loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus says, bring them to me. Reminiscent of what he would say here to the disciples regarding this this man with a demon-possessed son. He says, bring him here to me. And look at what happens next. Look at verses 20 through 22. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about a cell phone rang, and he started foaming at the mouth. Well, that, actually, that, that's not in the text. He was on the ground, rolling around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Now, this is one of the most amazing things to me that Jesus would do this. So this guy brings his father, he brings his son to Jesus. And his son is writhing around in pain, foaming at the mouth, right in front of Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He says, how long has this been going on? Now, to me, that's that's just the most, uh, the craziest response that Jesus could have mustered. Jesus says, how long has this been going? Why does it matter how long it's been going on? The guy's right in front of Jesus. He's foaming at the mouth. He's writhing around in pain. And Jesus takes the time to get a little bit of a medical history here. We say, why would Jesus delay? Why wouldn't he just heal the man? Well, Whenever Jesus delays, it's always intentional. Whenever Jesus delays, it's always intentional. Remember when uh, uh, Mary and Martha came to Jesus and they said, Hey, your very good friend, Lazarus, is deathly ill. He's about ready to die. He's very sick. And John tells us when he heard that, Jesus stayed two days longer where he was. So his friends tell him, you're you're very close friend. Maybe your best friend is about ready to die. And we're told Jesus stayed where he was for a couple of days. And then later, John tells us he did that for a purpose, so that they may believe. Well, here, this guy comes to Jesus with his son. His son is writhing around in pain, and Jesus says, well, how long has this been going on? Why would Jesus delay? Why wouldn't Jesus just heal the boy? Well, he does that, again, intentionally. He does that to allow the father not only to tell his story, But he permits the Father to open up to Jesus from his heart. He gives the Father license to be open about his doubts, his fears, his reservations. He gives him permission to be honest about his struggles. Here's the first thing I want you to see from this passage. When we approach Jesus, he desires and responds to complete openness and transparency this is our first uh, point this morning. When we approach Jesus, He desires and responds to complete openness and transparency. Now, how encouraging is that for us? How encouraging is it for us to recognize when we come to Jesus, we come to the Father through the Son, we don't have to sort of say certain words or, or be guarded about the way that we're really feeling. It's really encouraging to me as I read some of the prayers of some of the The Old Testament, uh, the faithful men and women of the Old Testament. David and and Abraham and Moses and Hannah. As I read some of those prayers, um, the the honesty, the rawness, it's really encouraging. And I think it really challenges us in our own prayer life. When's the last time you said something to God that was so raw, it was so honest, that it made you feel uncomfortable? Have you been that open with God lately? You're so honest with God. You're not trying to hide anything. You're not trying to conceal anything. You're so honest with God that it kind of makes you feel like, you know, I don't know if I... I mean, can I really say this? And Have I overstepped my bounds? Is this something I can say? We see this throughout, again, the, the prayers of the great women and men of the faith. They They struggle. They're direct with God. They're they're honest. They're painfully honest with God. They share their doubts, even as they cry out to God for deliverance. Talk about uncomfortable. Look at how, listen to how David addresses God in Psalm 13. David says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Consider and answer me. This is actually an imperative in the Hebrew language. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Eugene Peterson Who's a poet and a theologian and author? He's written uh, *The Message*, which is a—it's really more of an interpretation of of the scripture. But he, he writes this: in English translation, the Psalms often sound smooth and polished, sonorous with Elizabethan rhythms and diction. But the Psalms in Hebrew are earthy and rough. They're not genteel. They're not the prayers of nice people couched in cultured language. The prayers of, of God's people that we see in Scripture are not guarded at all. They're very direct. They're very open, very transparent. We read some of the Psalms and we think, David, I, mean, I don't know if I would have said it that way. I mean, you can, can't you clean it up a little bit? Can't you sort of couch it in, in, in a little more comfortable language? Well, Jesus has this encounter with his father of this demon-possessed boy. And he could have healed him right away. He knew what he was going to do. But what Jesus does is he asks about the condition as a way to let the father share his honest and raw struggles. He gives the the father a chance, the father of this boy, a chance to really open up as a way of instructing us that the God of the universe wants our candor, he wants our openness. Again, he could have healed the boy instantly, Jesus could have, but he waits. And he allows him to be honest. And look what he look what he gets. Look at verses 21 through 24. Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. What a beautiful statement by the father, isn't it? He's open. Again, he's honest. I think this is really, in my estimation, this is actually the climax of this story, not the healing of the boy, but the father's confession. The father says, rooted in his understanding of the compassion of Christ, he says, I believe, help my unbelief. King James Version says, Lord, I believe, he says, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. In other words, I have doubts. I don't know how this whole thing's going to work out. I I still have questions in my mind. I I don't have it all put together theologically, but I do believe. And I know that if if there's anyone who can help me, if there's anyone who can do anything, it's you, Jesus. I I don't know. I mean, again, I still have some things that are plaguing me, I haven't answered all my questions or, or, or addressed all my spiritual challenges. I just know that I need help, and I know that you're the only one who can provide it. This is actually the purest expression of faith. This man is just a tiny bit of faith, but he's confident enough in Jesus' character and compassion that he offers everything to Jesus with absolute candor. I love what New Testament scholar James Edwards writes. He says, the father becomes a believer not when he amasses a sufficient quantum of faith but when he risks everything on what little faith he has when he yields his insufficiency to the true sufficiency of jesus here's our second point this morning if you're taking notes true faith begins with a recognition of our inadequacies and a confidence in jesus ability and willingness to help true faith is precipitated by an awareness of our own shortcomings Moral, spiritual, ethical, physical, relational. It's a recognition that I can't do this on my own. I can't do this on my own. I can't live life on my own. And I surely can't save myself. This predicament that that I'm in is well beyond, way beyond something that I can remedy in my own strength. It is the painful yet very freeing understanding that we are broken, sinful, incomplete, Unrighteous people who don't have all the answers, who don't have all the solutions, people who need Jesus and His help and his righteousness. That's really the starting point. And that's the way this man in the story comes to Jesus. He comes, yeah, he has doubts. He says, Look, I, I help my unbelief. I have some doubts. But he comes to Jesus with complete dependence. And Jesus accepts him, which is really incredible. Jesus could have said, you know, I'm the king of kings, the glory of God and human flesh. Purify your heart and then come to me. He could have said that, couldn't he? He could have said, hey, listen, why don't you go home and why don't you spend some time alone? And when you've satisfied your doubts, when you come to me without any questions, then I'll receive you. That's not what he does. He could have said, hey, when you get your act together, right? When you clean yourself up spiritually, you come to me with a pure heart. Then I'll hear you and I'll give you what you need. He doesn't do that. Nothing of the sort. That's because saving faith is faith in Jesus, not in ourselves. Saving faith means coming to the end of ourselves. We can never be righteous enough. We can never clean ourselves up enough. We can never go home and spend time alone enough so that we can come to God and say, Now I can come to you and I'm pure. One of my earliest uh, counseling situations, I don't know, 18 or 19 years ago, I'm, I'm meeting with this married couple and... And neither one would confess any wrongdoing in their situation. Neither one was willing to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And what occurred to me, again, this is like my first year of ministry. What occurred to me back then was what we really need is not, the goal here is not to make people better and get it all together and spiritually strong and independent. What we need is more brokenness. We need more confession. We need more contrition. And this is this father, he comes to Jesus, he has his son there. He knows that he can't do anything. And yet he has his doubts, he has his questions, but he's coming to Jesus with a sense of openness. He recognizes that he's totally helpless before this Savior. This is really what separates Christianity, of course, from every other religion. Religion is about cleaning ourselves up and then coming to God. In fact, every religion has a set of steps, ways, secrets, paths, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, it's, it's the, the, eight, uh, the five uh, pilgrimage, the eight steps, whatever it is, it's, 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 this is how I'm going to appease the gods. This is how I'm going to be right with God by doing, by sacrificing. And Christianity, the Christian faith says, no, you can never do enough, but what needs to be done has been done for you by Jesus. See, we're, we're, we're not just broken people. We are broken people. We're not just broken. We are sinful, selfish, wicked enemies of God. C.S. Lewis says, Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. See, what God requires of us is not to come to him without any questions, but without any self-reliance, without any trust, in our own ability or goodness, without any dependence on our own insight or wisdom or brilliance or acumen. What God requires is that we come to Him in faith with our struggles, with our questions, and yet with a desire not to present ourselves to Him as worthy, but as those who are unworthy, those who are banking everything on His grace and His righteousness. Now, Look how the story unfolds, verses 25 through 27. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Now notice how violent this exchange is. Scary stuff. It's convulsing and shrieking and foaming at the mouth, crying out for help. The evil spirit wreaks havoc on this boy, so much so that after Jesus casts out the demon and takes the boy by the hand, the crowd concludes he's dead. This kid, this, this kid is dead. Now why do they conclude the boy is dead? It's because they had no category for this type of power. I worked with uh, a youth pastor once. And, um, he, and I love the guy We became very good friends, but he would say some of the oddest things when he was preaching, I guess it was sort of appealing to, uh, you know, the younger generation. He would talk about, well, I'm not even going to get into it because it was kind of grotesque. And, but, but he had this one saying, he would say, um, he'd say, I don't have a category for that. He would say that all the time. I don't have a category for that. And what he meant was like, like, I don't even know how to make, I don't even know where to begin to make sense of that. This is kind of where the audience was. They didn't have, they didn't have a category for this. For a man who would commit... Because people were scared to death of evil spirits. And if you were possessed by an evil spirit, if you were demon-possessed, it often meant that you lived in isolation. And people were afraid to even approach you. And yet Jesus demonstrates this incredible power. The power of evil in that day was so strong and violent that it meant that many demon-possessed folks lived way off in the distance. Sometimes in caves or uh, out in the middle of nowhere. and, And people didn't dare approach them. People were terrified by evil spirits because they were violent and and untamable. But here Jesus comes and he not only rebukes the demon, he commands the demon never to enter the boy again. And the people, they're stunned by this. Like, who in the world does this? I mean, who has this sort of power? Who says to demons, leave and don't come back? And they flee. The crowd has no category for this. There's no way really to process this. They have no room for something that they can't explain. But here we see the power of God on display in the person of Jesus, power over nature, power over the elements, and even power over the spiritual realm. There is no situation that is beyond God's ability to remedy. Now you may think about your situation. Yeah, but you don't know you don't know what I'm going you don't understand. Jesus has power over the physical realm, the spiritual realm, the relational realm. There's no situation in your life, in my life, in history. There's nothing that is beyond His ability to remedy, to reconcile, to restore. He has all power. Now, it doesn't mean that we get everything we ask for, but it does mean that God can and work in a way that is for your good and His glory. Now look at the conclusion verses 28 through 29. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to him, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So they get Jesus alone, the disciples, they say, uh, like what happened back there? Because we've done this, we've cast out demons before. So what was the deal there? Why didn't that work? Why do we, we said something, we said some things, yeah, presumably, but but why didn't it work? And Jesus says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, when Jesus says this kind, he's not sort of saying like, this is the worst kind of demon. This is an A-class demon, right? Now, if this had been a B-class or a C-class demon, you guys could have done it, but this is an A-class. He's not saying this kind, meaning like this is a special kind of demon. This is the class you don't fool with. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, where there's no prayer, there's no power. Without prayer, nothing of any spiritual value can be accomplished. Here's what he's saying. This is our final point this morning. It is through prayer alone that the spiritual powers of darkness are overcome and lives are infused with the freedom and joy in Christ. It's only by prayer. This kind... A spiritual challenge of this magnitude can only be overcome by prayer. Well, I'm ashamed to admit to you what I tend to do when I face my biggest challenges is I put out a plan. I do a lot of pacing around. My wife says, why are you always pacing? I pace a lot. I put together a critical path on how to conquer this challenge. I think if I, get, if I really pay attention to all the details, I'm going to address the situation successfully. And in my own strength, I realize I can't do anything. How am I going to change somebody's heart? How am I going to make somebody believe? How am I going to reconcile two parties that are at odds with each other? I can't do any of those things. Nothing of any good, at least spiritually speaking, will happen in our lives or in our church apart from desperate prayer the kind that Jesus calls for in this passage. Let me say it a different way. Prayer is the vehicle through which God pours out His grace and power in our situation. In the days immediately following the terrorist attacks of 9-11, Timothy Keller, who was a pastor in Manhattan at the time, uh, he went through a really dark time in his life, went through some challenges physically physically, some challenges spiritually, along with his wife, Kathy. Tim was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. His wife, Kathy, uh, was struggling with Crohn's disease. And on top of their physical issues, which were, were uh, significant anyway, they were under great spiritual attack. The church was only a few blocks away from uh, the, the now-destroyed Twin uh, Towers, and, and they were struggling to make sense of it. And people in their church, people in their city were struggling to make sense of it. And Tim Keller writes that it was a very, very difficult time to lead in that situation. Very difficult. And he said at that time, he and his wife, his, his wife, uh, Kathy, asked him to do something they had never really done, at least in practice. And that was to pray together with a sense of urgency every night. Uh, Kathy, his, Tim Keller's wife, said, imagine that you were diagnosed with a lethal condition that the doctor said you would die unless you took a particular medicine every day. She said, would you ever forget it? She went on to say, if we don't pray together, we're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. I mean, we have pressures from the outside, pressures from within, physical ailments, cancer and and disease. If we don't pray, we won't make it. Tim Keller said at that moment changed him. The desperation in his wife's voice, her understanding of their need for prayer It helped them to see just how desperate they were and how much they depended on Christ for everything. Without prayer, we can't do anything of substance because we're relying on our own strength. And our own strength is not going to get us very far. But with prayer, with prayer, we unite ourselves to the God of the universe who can do all things, who unleashes His power through the prayers of His people. Let me give you another example. This was a few hundred years before... Uh, Timothy Keller probably uh, know a little bit about uh, Martin Luther. You probably read some about him. He was a one of the reformers. He was a fiery individual, and and maybe if you, you read about him, you know that he was a guy who was always willing to ready to take on just about anybody, and uh, he's ready to fight against anybody. And uh, well, he was also a man. Most people, a lot of people don't realize this, uh, and I know my friend Billy does because he just read the uh, biography by Eric Metaxas, but. Uh, most people don't realize that that even though he was a fiery uh, guy who was ready to fight all the time, he was also a guy who struggled incredibly with with spiritual depression, loneliness, guilt, and shame. And there was a period in in Martin Luther's life when he was, uh, this is actually July of 1521. He's sitting in the uh, Wartburg uh, Castle, and he's supposed to be working on a translation of the New Testament. Um, But he was in such a dark place spiritually, he was not making any progress at all. And so, he was in one of the worst places he can be. He was apathetic. And here's what Luther wrote. He said, I sit here at ease, hardened and unfeeling, praying little, grieving little for the church of God, burning rather in the fierce fires of my untamed flesh. It comes to this. I should be a fire in the spirit. In reality, I'm a fire in the flesh with lust, laziness, idleness, sleepiness. And then he draws this conclusion. It is perhaps because you have all ceased praying for me that God has turned away from me. Now, it's not usually a good idea when you struggle to blame someone else, right? It's not usually a good idea when you're going through some apathy in your life to start pointing your finger at the people around you and saying, why aren't you praying for me? But Martin Luther understood something absolutely essential. He understood something that was so critical to his own spiritual development. And it was this. The powers of darkness are only overcome through prayer. The powers of darkness, the powers of lust and envy and striving and greed, and and the attacks of the evil one—they're only overcome, only overcome through prayer. Certainly on a macro level. Certainly on a macro level. That is to say, that in the life of our church, as we seek to make disciples and make disciples for God's glory and the joy of all peoples, this will not happen unless we as a congregation are committed to prayer we're not going to we're not going to make disciples unless we're absolutely devoted to this sort of desperate prayer without prayer we will never lead people into the joy and forgiveness of Jesus but with prayer we will see lives completely transformed by the power of the gospel because God promises to work through our intercession without prayer we will not see marriages restored and protected from the evil we won't see it We will not see marriages restored without prayer. But with prayer, we will see husbands and wives who were formerly at odds with each other humbly seek one another's forgiveness and be restored. Without prayer, we will not see our children grow up to walk with God. And I know this is a concern to all of us who have children. But with prayer, we will see our sons and daughters pierced by their own stubbornness brought to repentance over their own rebellion. And we will see and celebrate God's work of salvation in those we care about the most because God promises to work through prayer. So certainly on a macro level, but also on a micro level, our own temptations, our own inclinations to guilt and fear and shame, those will only be overcome by prayer. And we're going to make a commitment here. We're going to, when we resume our Wednesday night uh Uh, connect. We're going to, once a quarter, we're going to gather together and we're just going to pray. Not going to be any teaching, no singing. We're just going to pray. And we did this, uh, we had these corporate prayer gatherings at the church that I, I came from in Southern California. And I had no idea how sweet and moving and powerful they would be. It's going to be led. It's going to be one hour. We're going to keep it right in an hour, but we're going to, we're going to plead with God. God, do a revival in North Alabama. Bring, bring our sons and daughters to saving faith. Reconcile those who are broken. Restore those who are fighting against each other. God, do something that only you can do. It happens on a macro level. It happens on a micro level as we see God at work through our prayers. And yet, you know, in our results-centered, performance-driven world, it's so easy, isn't it, to believe we can do it. We can do it all. Just one more email, one more meeting, one more phone call one more proposal one more blog entry one more visit we just do one more we'll see accomplished what we want to see accomplished until we schedule all those meetings and we have those phone calls and we do those visits and we hear in our futility the words of Jesus without me you can do nothing we try and we try and we exhaust ourselves and then we remember the words of Jesus that we read in this beautiful passage. Bring it to me. Bring it to me. Whatever you're struggling with this morning, spiritually, relationally, maybe it's a situation at home, maybe it's a scenario at work, maybe it's, it's, if you're at odds with your own children, whatever it is, Jesus says, Repent of your own self-reliance. And bring it to me. Bring it to me. Let's pray.